you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 9? Luke chapter 9, verse 37. Last week, we looked at a very crucial event in the life and ministry of Jesus. It was the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus to the mountain, and they saw Christ in all of his glory. Christ revealed uh, in his full perfection and glory, and they caught a glimpse of that and a glimpse of the final kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that would one day come. And Luke tells us in verse 37 that the next day after this event, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and it's destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you for the honor and the privilege that we have this morning to take this time to look at your word, to read it, to think on what it is teaching us today. Father, this passage of Scripture reveals more and more to us of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, about His Lordship, His glory, His majesty, His power. And Lord, it also reminds us of our proper place uh, in relationship to You and in relationship to one another. And so, Father, I pray that this would be a time in which we learn more of You and learn more about how we might relate to You and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Father, may your Spirit teach us and apply these truths to our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. 
I think one of the things that plagues us as human beings is a tendency to overestimate our own abilities and a tendency to forget where it is that those abilities come from. And the first part of our passage this morning is a passage in which we find the disciples of Jesus having to be reminded that they need to be in constant dependence on the Lord. Because it's not by their power, it's not by their might. It is only by the power and the might of Jesus that they're able to do anything. And so we have this story where the disciples and Jesus come down from the mountain of transfiguration. And as often would happen, we see Jesus encountering a crowd of people. And they were waiting for him when he got down from the mountain. And Jesus encounters a man there who is begging Jesus to heal his child because his uh, son is totally under the control of a demon. And this demon would afflict this child by throwing him to the ground, making him go into like seizure-like convulsions. He would start foaming at the mouth, totally taking over control of this young man's body. And the father told Jesus that this is continually going on. This happens over and over again. It says in verse uh, 39, he scarcely leaves him alone. He's destroying him. And then in verse number 40, he says this to uh, Jesus. He says, I tried to ask your disciples if they could drive him out, but they could not. I begged your disciples to drive him out, but they could not. And I was thinking about that in relationship to something that we've seen really recently in the Gospel of Luke. And that is where Jesus gave his disciples power to go out and to heal. And power to go out and to cast out demons. And it says in the passage earlier in in this chapter that... Uh, the disciples came back and reported to Jesus that they had done that. They, they gave Jesus the news of the successes of their ministry in going around the towns of Galilee and healing people and casting out demons. And so then we come to this point and it says that this man asked Jesus' disciples to drive out this demon, but they couldn't, which raises the question in our minds, why, right? Why Why were the disciples of Jesus not able to cast out this demon? And I think we get a hint of it in the rest of the passage. One, I think, possibility is in verse 41, where Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. So perhaps one of the problems with the disciples of Jesus is that their faith waned. They had some unbelief creep in, uh, perhaps because of the severeness of this child's demon possession. Maybe they didn't think they could do it. Maybe they didn't think it was possible. Their faith waned. And so Jesus rebukes uh, perhaps his disciples as well as the people for their unbelief. And he says, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? 
And then I think we also get a hint later in the passage as well, when the disciples start arguing with one another about who would be the greatest. And so perhaps some unbelief crept in, but perhaps also some spiritual pride crept in. And maybe uh, one disciple thinking better than the other, and one disciple thinking, well, I can do this, but you can't. And then it turned out that none of them could do it because they ended up in pride and unbelief. And in another place, we, we read that Jesus says, this kind comes only by prayer and by fasting. And so this is a, a, a very serious situation, a situation in which clearly the power of God was needed. And I think one of the reasons why this passage is here and this inability of the disciples to cast out this demon is reported to us is to remind us of this truth that everything that we are, everything that we have, every ability that we are able to do comes from the gracious hand of God. Everything, everything that we are, everything that we're able to do, everything that he gives us, ultimately it comes from the gracious hand of God. As James Wright writes in chapter one of James, every good and every perfect gift comes from above from God, our faithful, never-changing, unturning God. And so I think the disciples here got into a situation where they forgot that. They forgot that they were dependent on the power of Christ. That, hey, this would just be like any other time, perhaps, that they cast out a demon. And it didn't work out that way because they weren't fully dependent on the power of Jesus. And they let some pride get in their way. But Jesus says, bring the boy here. And even while the boy was coming, he had one of these demon-possessed convulsions, seizure-like moments. And at that very moment, Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And as we've seen time and time again in Jesus' ministry, the healing is complete, isn't it? The healing is full. It is complete. It is instantaneous. And just like Jesus could say, peace be still, and the waves stop immediately, he says to this demon, get out. And he is out immediately. And the boy is returned to a normal uh, behavior, his right mind. Jesus' power on display. And it says that they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And so I think one of the lessons of this passage, especially in this first portion, is the disciples needed to trust, needed to depend upon the power of Christ. And I think they forgot that. At least for a moment, for a time, some unbelief, some pride, some maybe self-sufficiency crept into their thinking. And they need to be reminded through this failure that everything that they could do was dependent on God. The Apostle Paul in Colossians makes this statement. He says, I work mightily through the power, through the strength with which God works in me. And so Paul had this understanding. He reminded himself and he told the Colossian believers, everything that I do is because God is working in me and working through me. I have nothing on my own. It all comes from God. We need that reminder, don't we? 
we need that reminder. And, and let me just add to that as well that it's not just for supernatural abilities. You know, in this particular instance, Jesus' disciples were not able to do something supernatural because they forgot they were dependent on Christ. But I just want to remind us that everything, not just the supernatural, everything that we do, everything that we have, everything that we are comes from God, comes from his gracious hand. Every talent that you have comes from God. Every ability, every skill that you have comes from God. You might say, well, yeah, but I spent years and years learning how to do that skill. Well, yes, who gave you that time? Who gave you that energy? Who gave you that ability? Who gave you the parents who brought you into those circumstances to give you that ability? Who gave you uh, the training, the, the first initial instruction to get started down that road to learn that skill? Everything comes from outside of us. A lot of it comes through people, but in, even in that, God is working through those people, isn't he? So we are blessed by the family that we're born into. We're blessed by the country that we're born into. We're blessed by the things that are given to us that are outside of our control. And then we're blessed by the friends that we have and the family that we have and the schools that we go to and, and the influences on in our lives and all of these things that... Uh, yes, we have a part to play in them, but ultimately it's God's providence that is allowing us to do those things. Everything that we have is from God. And so the disciples needed that reminder. And then Jesus says something to his disciples. He turns to them, and I think kind of in a private moment that he's able to kind of steal away just for a moment and share this with his disciples He says to them in verse 44, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And we've seen Jesus tell his disciples this before, but now Luke tells us in verse 45 very clearly that the disciples did not understand it. They couldn't grasp it. How does does this fit together? We've already seen in the gospel of Luke chapter 9, just a few weeks ago, that uh, Peter declared... You are God's Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And immediately after that, Jesus said in verse 22, that the Son of Man is going to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And Jesus here in verse number 44 tells them again that Jesus is going to be delivered into the hands of men and die and they can't quite put it together. They don't understand it. How, Jesus, how can you be the Messiah if you're going to die? And, and I think there was still this disconnect of they were reading passages of glory, passages of ma- majesty, and, and passages in the prophets that talked about the reign of the Messiah, and they forgot about or didn't fully put together passages like Isaiah 53 that talked about the suffering servant and how that would fit into God's plan. In fact, verse 45 here tells us that not only did the disciples not understand, but it was hidden from them. They could not grasp it. And so perhaps not only their own inability to put things together from the scriptures, but perhaps even God intentionally, for a time, putting a veil over their eyes 
so they could not fully see and understand, but that so that in the end, when Christ was crucified and then raised from the dead, after his resurrection, God could pull that veil back and he could show them everything that unfolded and then correlate it to these Hebrew scriptures, to the prophets, and God could shine the light on in a moment. And it would dawn on them in that moment, everything that Jesus had said, everything that the word of God said and all the prophets, and it would all come together at that moment like a flash of light and they would understand it and they would grasp it. But at this particular moment during the ministry of Jesus, they're not quite able to grasp it. And it says they're even afraid to ask him about it. But then we see in verse 46, an argument start out among them about which of them would be the greatest. How many of you have ever done that? Any, any pride in here? We're all, we're all prone to pride, aren't we? Some of us will not right, come right out and say, I'm better than you. I'm greater than you. But a lot of us think it. A lot of times we think of ourselves as better than other people. Sometimes we get into arguments with people about who can do something better. And the disciples got into this argument about which of them would be the greatest. In some of the other passages in the Gospels, we see that they were arguing at different times about who is going to have the highest position in the kingdom of Christ. Who's going to have the the ability to sit on his right hand? the place of privilege, who's going to be next to him on his left hand. And, and then outward from there, and they, they were kind of in their minds, even beforehand, before the, the full realization of the kingdom of Christ, trying to set out a pecking order of who was going to be closest to Christ when they sat on their thrones in the kingdom. And this really highlights the fact that they could not understand what Jesus was saying when he said, that he was going to go to the cross and be delivered into the hands of men. Because those two things don't go together, do they? It's like on the one hand, Jesus is saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And in the very next breath, we see the disciples, well, I don't understand what he means here, but I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm greater than you. I'm going to be greater in the kingdom. And this really more than anything, I think, highlights the fact that they're not quite yet understanding because they're still thinking of the kingdom of Christ in this glory and majesty and power and reign. And I'm going to be on his right hand and and I'm going to be higher than you. And they're not understanding the fact that Jesus here is talking about him humbling himself to give himself for his people and willingly go to the cross and give himself for their salvation. Earlier in the service, we read from Philippians chapter two, where Paul reminds us of this humility. He says in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, if anyone ever had a right to claim and to hold on to glory, it was Christ. Fully equal with God, 
in full nature and divine being God, but willingly, of his own accord, made himself nothing, humbled himself, and took on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even a cross kind of a death. And so Jesus in Philippians 2 is the ultimate example of humility. Of someone who is worthy of the highest position in the universe. In full equality with God but willingly in self-sacrifice humble himself and bring himself low for the sake of other people. And in this passage, we see the disciples squabbling, arguing about who was going to be the greatest. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And so he took a little child and had him stand beside him And he said, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Why did Jesus use a child as an object lesson? Well, it's because a child, especially a young, a little child, has no strength. No strength, no power. No, not a lot of skill, a lot of abilities, not a lot of intelligence yet, still a lot to learn. And a child does not have any position of recognition, of authority or power or honor. And so a child has none of the things that we usually associate with human greatness, strength, ability, intelligence, wealth, position, fame. A child has none of those things. And in fact, a young child, for the most part, is still completely dependent on the care of others. And Jesus says, here is a child. And I'm telling you that if you welcome a child, if you bless a child, then you are welcoming me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes also God, the one who sent me. And then he says, for the one who is least among you all is the greatest. Giving them in principle form exactly what we see Jesus himself doing in Philippians chapter 2. Right? Jesus the greatest says, I'm going to become least among you. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The greatest became the least. And by becoming the least, he then becomes the greatest again, doesn't he? Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the path to greatness 
Jesus shows them, is not by trying to be great. The path to greatness is not by arguing with one another about who is better, who is greater. The path to greatness is through humility. Through humility, through submitting to one another and being willing to put others before ourselves, as Paul said earlier in Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And then he gives us the prime example of Jesus. In your relationships with one another, let your mindset, your attitude be that of Christ who humbled himself. And so Jesus is trying to teach his disciples this principle in Luke chapter 9. So if you're going to be great, you have to be a servant, meaning there's no place for spiritual pride. There's no place for I'm better than you in the kingdom of God. The right place in the kingdom of God is here. Let me pick up this towel in this basin and wash your feet. That's the right position to be in, in the kingdom of God. We, we see another example in this passage in Luke chapter 9, in which John comes to Jesus and says, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Now, in my understanding, in my reading of this passage, there's a lot of irony in this verse. A lot of irony in this verse because earlier in the passage, what were the disciples unable to do? Cast out a demon, right? So they come across an instance in which there's this boy controlled by a demon, thrown to the ground, foaming at the mouth, this father begging them to cast him out, and they were not able to do it. But apparently they come across someone else, a, someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, someone who is uh, seeking to follow in the way of Jesus and trying to cast out demons. And they say, hey, you need to stop that because you're not one of the inner circle. You're not one of us. You're not with the 12 or you're not with the three. You need to stop doing that. We can't do it, but you shouldn't be doing it either. You need to stop that. And again, Jesus rebukes John for this. He says, do not stop him. Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Whoever is not against you is for you. A little bit later in the gospel of Luke in chapter 11, we're going to come across another statement like this, which is a little bit different in that statement in Luke chapter 11. Jesus is going to say, whoever is not with us is against us. Are those contradictory statements? No, I think they're complementary statements that work together. And Jesus is saying to his disciples here in this passage, just because someone isn't a part of our inner circle, if you will, doesn't mean that they can't legitimately be one of my disciples seeking to do the right thing and following in the path of God. And I think here too, this 
this rebuke of John and the disciples to this other unnamed person who was trying to cast out demons, I think it's just another mark of their spiritual pride. Just like they were arguing with one another back and forth about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, here they're like, no, 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 you shouldn't be doing that. That's our reserve. You know, that's, that's our job as the 12, as the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. We're the ones who should be doing that, even though sometimes we can't. That's still our place. You shouldn't be doing that. But Jesus says, no, it's not about position. It's not about who's in the inner circle, who's not. It's not about any of that. It's about whose side you're on. And if you're on Jesus' side, if you're on the same team, if you will, then don't rebuke him. We're working together for the same purposes. And so stop getting caught up in your pride of, no, this is my position. This is my responsibility. Let me just quickly apply this to the local church. And there are times in the local church where we as brothers and sisters in Christ can get into uh, arguments, hurt feelings, strife, division, because we feel like maybe someone is stepping on our turf. Whether it be a, a task that I normally do or a ministry that I normally do or something that I'm normally in charge of or whatever, and someone else does that, it's easy for us to get into this mode of, hey, that's, that's my domain. That's my territory. You shouldn't be doing that. Whereas I think Jesus would say to us, no, we're all on the same team, right? We're all working together. And so let's not rebuke one another for that. And I think as we put everything together from this whole passage that we've looked at this morning, we see that because everything that we have and are able to do comes from God's gracious hand, there's no room for spiritual pride. So the passage opened with the disciples' inability to cast out a demon. And they needed to be reminded of Jesus' power and of their dependence on Jesus. And then if that lesson wasn't enough, Jesus then had to reinforce the lesson by reminding them that it's not about position. It's not about what, where you are on the pecking order or the organizational chart. It's not any of those things. It's about serving one another. It's about humbling yourself and serving one another. And if other people are doing the same thing and we're working together on the same team, then, then don't get all pridefully defensive about this person stepping on your turf. No, we're all working together. Remember, everything you have comes from God, from his gracious hand. And so there's no room for competition. There's no room for spiritual pride. There's no room for I'm better than you or this is my place, not yours. And so may this passage remind us of these truths that everything we have is from God, including the salvation that we have been graciously bestowed by the grace of God. The ground is level, you've heard, isn't it, at the foot of the cross? It doesn't matter if you're a king or a slave. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. It doesn't matter what your status, your position. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. 
the ground is level at the foot of the cross because at the foot of the cross we're all sinners, hopelessly lost, and our only hope is the grace of Christ. And when we remember that, then we will be less prone to say, no, this is my place, not yours. Or, I can do this, you can't. Or, I'm better than you. No, when we remember what we've been given by Christ and what we really deserved, we really deserve nothing. We deserve hell. We deserve judgment. And now having received the blessing of salvation and adoption into the family of God, there's no place for spiritual pride. No place for I'm better than you. And so may God remind us of that. May his spirit impress that upon our hearts. And may we day by day remember that we are completely dependent on him and his grace. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege and the honor that we have to read and to think on your word today. Lord, you have, through this passage, through your servant Luke and his recording of the events and the words of Jesus, he has reminded us of uh, our complete dependence upon you, that everything we have is a gift from you. Father, this passage has reminded us that uh, we are just humble, dependent sinners. There's no room for competition or pride or putting ourselves over uh, other people. No, as your servant Paul reminded us, uh, let nothing be done out of conceit or pride or vainglory, but in everything, let us consider other people above ourselves, seeking not our own interests, but the interests of others. And Father, may we be reminded daily of the humility of Christ who had everything and was worthy of everything and worthy of all honor and praise and glory and willingly came down to earth in the form of a humble man and humbled himself even further by dying on a cross. God, may we remember his example and his sacrifice for us. And Lord, may we look for the day when Jesus returns for us and we can be with him in glory. Father, bless this time and may your spirit continue to do his work in our hearts even after we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.